agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government has the government love. The government has the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Chris Brady, a New York Times bestselling author, speaker, humorist, and businessman. His latest book is The Bitcoin Bride, A Rascal Money Story, which in a really sea of how does cryptocurrency work books and other various explainers, I think really stands out for its unique and accessible approach. Now, recently, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies have taken on even greater importance in American politics and policy due to economic sanctions imposed on Russia after its invasion of Ukraine. And some are arguing that Russia can use cryptocurrency to at least partly evade sanctions. And in addition to this, only a few weeks ago, President Biden issued an executive order on cryptocurrency asking federal agencies to consider what regulations may be necessary and even raising the possibility of a potential government-backed cryptocurrency. And we've talked about crypto on the podcast before, but this is the first time we've had an actual expert on to discuss it, which I am really looking forward to doing. So, Chris Brady, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be on. So I thought before we got into all of those details, uh, sometimes for a lot of people, cryptocurrency is sort of a, uh, a difficult thing to grasp. And so I thought we'd start with that. What exactly is cryptocurrency and how did it, I don't know, sort of become a thing? Yeah, well, that's why I wrote the Bitcoin Bride to answer <laughs> that exact question, because yeah. it is a big, complicated answer. And uh, so the book puts it in a fun novel story in Italy, a little romance. So people would uh, maybe read it and learn a little bit about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. But to really answer the question, we have to believe it or not, Michael, we have to go back in time 2,500 years to a kingdom called Lydia, which wow. was in what is now uh, in modern day Western Turkey. And what happened in Lydia is King Croesus, it was only a three-generation dynasty, and then they were conquered and gone. But something huge happened in the 500 BCs by, under King Croesus and Lydia, and he invented coinage. It, it was the first government to ever issue coins. Now, the invention of coinage is huge because they're fungible, and now you could take one gold coin. It, it was worth exactly the same amount as another, as long as it was stamped. With the king's lion, I think they put in one side of the coin, um, you knew that how much it was worth and you didn't have to deal with weights and measures. So it was a technological breakthrough of the time. But the second thing, and it was a secondary effect, and this is really the beginning of the story of cryptocurrency, believe it or not, is inventing coinage and King Croesus minting coins from his, from his government, inserted government into money. It was the first time in world history where government was involved issuing money. Now, you and I have grown up knowing nothing different. We just think that's what money is. The government issues it, tells you that you have to use it. You must use it for legal tender. And if you make your own, you're a counterfeiter and we'll put you in jail. Well, King Croesus invented that 2,500 years ago. And it wasn't long until governments everywhere decided they were the kings of the money supply. And Bitcoin came along. And was the first time someone put together a workable way for privatized money, non-government money. So cryptocurrency began with Bitcoin. It was the beginning. It was the invention. It was the biggest, still the biggest. And its idea was to be money that was not in the hands of government. 
Okay. And so I guess the, the, the natural follow-up question to that, right, is, well, why would anyone want that, right? Why, why would you want something, you know, U.S. dollars that worked for, well, for me for, well, I won't say how many years, but, or euros or what have you. Why, why do we need cryptocurrency, I guess? Yeah, well, the biggest answer to that, and it, it's, it was part of the genesis story of the invention of Bitcoin, too. Bitcoin was invented by uh, someone who named himself, herself, or themselves. We don't know if it was a man, woman, or a group. Uh, the name, the pseudonymous name was Satoshi Nakamoto. And that person or group of people uh, basically invented Bitcoin, put together all these technological pieces that went together to form this elegant solution that was Bitcoin, the first privatized money in 2,500 years. And they did it on the heels of the 2008 financial crisis. The white paper announcing Bitcoin came out on Halloween of 2008. The Genesis block and the launch of Bitcoin happened in early January of 2009. And in the text notes of that first, when the code was launched, that first block was written, uh, it, there was a headline from news in the UK about the chancellor doing more bailouts for banks. And so, so this invention of non-government money was motivated by the fact that governments mess up the money supply. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, money is all the monies in the world right now, whether it's the US dollar, the euro, the yuan, the renminbi, all of the different currencies of the world are all what you'd call fiat currencies. They're just issued by dictate. They're not backed by anything. And, um, and all of those currencies are being inflated. They're being debased. There's so much new issuance of currencies and the supply of those currencies is expanding so precipitously that it causes, among other things, it causes inflation, which means the value of the in our, in our case, dollars that we hold goes down in value over time. And this is, this is even worse for people when they're low income or poor. It affects them even more. So inflation through the, through the uh, behavior of the central banks and the overspending of governments ends up robbing buying power from people who dare save. And, and it hurts the poor the worst, and it causes this growing gap between the rich and the poor. For all those reasons, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency were invented to give people a stable money that no one can tamper with its supply, and it would be a safe store of value for the fruits of their labor. Bitcoin, there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoins. That number cannot be changed. Uh, it can't be modified. It can't be controlled by a secret a uh, federal open market committee that meets behind closed doors and, and obfuscates with their complicated language in front of Congress like the Federal Reserve does, the amount of Bitcoin is fixed. And already over 19 million of those 21 million Bitcoins have been issued. And even more important, the schedule of the new issuance of Bitcoins between now and the year 2140, when the new Bitcoins run out, that schedule is predetermined in hard code. So we, now, unlike the U.S. dollar, which we don't know how much more they're going to produce from day to day, Bitcoin, we know exactly how many there are going to be, and we know how many there are going to be produced, and we know the schedule at which they will be produced, which means it's a store of value that can't be tampered with, and it can't be inflated and debased. That's why it matters. That's the first reason that it matters, and there's a bunch more. 
Yeah, I, I want to actually get into that point, right? Because you mentioned a store of value that can't be deba debased. And that, of course, you know, that sounds like a very good thing. One of the primary things about money is that it is that kind of stable store of value or people want it to be that. But when I look at kind of the cryptocurrency industry uh, as it is, it stands right now, it has this kind of Wild West feel to it. You know, I mean, I look at Bitcoin's price chart and it, I mean, you hear these crazy stories, right, about pe people who bought, you know, like $40 for the Bitcoin and now it's worth so much or people going broke. And I think, boy, that seems anything like stable, that seems, in fact, incredibly unstable. It seems like a really risky investment. And, you know, I, that means seems part of why in his recent executive order, President Biden said, you know, the federal agencies, well, what kind of what kind of regulation should we have on cryptocurrency? And that right now it's kind of a very much an underregulated market that's kind of full of some people who seem to maybe be uh, a little bit uh, unsavory, I guess. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, is the cryptocurrency market right now or industry underregulated? It's a very Wild West scenario we have right now. And I to, let me dig into this and give you a couple couple aspects to answer that question. The first one I think uh, your your audience needs to understand is that cryptocurrency is a broad umbrella that takes into account a whole bunch of different things. Bitcoin was the original, as I already said, and it kind of invented the category, and it came along with the purpose of being privatized money. The problem, the enormous problem that it solved was getting money outside of the hands of government, having a way that a free people could have a free money. It's technology, blockchain, um, proof of work, all these elegant things that went into the soup to make Bitcoin work have all been copied. They, they can easily be copied and duplicated. And that has spawned this massive world of other cryptocurrencies, what you might call alternative coins or altcoins. Uh, and there's, there's less favorable names that uh, hardcore Bitcoiners give them too. So over here, you've got Bitcoin as the only truly decentralized, standalone, no central point of failure. No one's in charge of it. There's no committee. There's no promotional group. There's no marketing campaign. There's no uh, there's no one getting seniorage by issuing those coins and keeping some for themselves. Bitcoin kind of stands alone. And then you have this market of tens of thousands of alternative coins that have copied some of or all of the technology of Bitcoin and become their own thing, where in most cases, people want to be their own central authority. Uh, and, and, and almost in every case, none of those are truly decentralized. And so You've got this Wild West because it's it's a time for innovation. It's a time for a lot of interesting projects where people are creating all these cryptocurrency coins to solve different problems. And uh, But a lot of what's gone on there has been Wild West. There's a lot of shady characters. There's a lot of coins that have raised a lot of money. And they're really a solution looking for a problem. They're really not solving some huge problem like Bitcoin did. If you look at the structure of almost all of those alternative coins, they don't pass the sniff test for being secure for not being securities. They are securities. And yet we don't have regulations where, where no one's applied the securities regulation to those coins yet. And so Bitcoin has already been uh, determined to be a commodity, essentially a digital property. And if you buy Bitcoin low and sell it high, you pay a capital gains tax on that, as you would if you did so with gold. 
But most, if not all, of these thousands of other crypto copycat currencies, they, they aren't like Bitcoin. They're not truly decentralized. They're not strictly digital property. They're doing other things. They're promising other things. They have issuance schedules that are under control of a central authority. And so they are securities. And our securities laws are designed to protect the investor, to protect the retail investor and the consumer against fraud. And I think it's very appropriate, and I think it's imminent that you will see securities law applied to almost all of those other cryptocurrencies. And as that happens, many, many of those are going to go away. So, you know, you, you mentioned the I, I want to get to specifically Bitcoin then, because I think that's a great point when it would be like somebody saying, well, you know, the value of money is unstable. What are you talking about? Are you talking about dollars or pounds or, or what have you or euros? And so it's, it's, I think it's a great point. We can't lump it all together. So let's just for a minute talk specifically about Bitcoin. Uh, I mean, I, I just pulled up the, the price chart for Bitcoin and, and still we talk about stable, you know, a stable source of value and it does bounce around a lot. And I think maybe people who are considering that as an alternative would say, well, geez, I, it doesn't seem very stable to me and the value of it seems to inflate and deflate in very short periods. So is that just, I mean, I mean, what accounts for that? And is this the sort of thing that would work out over time? Or uh, what do you say to people who say, well, the dollar seems a lot more, a lot safer investment than Bitcoin at this point? Yeah, it's a great question. So the dollar uh, goes down in value over time very predictably and very uh, consistently. If you look back at what a dollar would buy in the year 1913 when the central bank called the Federal Reserve was first enacted, uh, and you look at what the dollar can buy today, it's a decreasing chart. Like you, It's 100% predictable sure. yep. that the dollar is going to lose value. Bitcoin goes up and down, up and down, up and down. But if you zoom back like you did on the dollar, it goes up over time. So Bitcoin in the short term, if you have too short of a time horizon, Bitcoin is terribly volatile. And that uh, I'll go into why in a minute. But Bitcoin in the short term is very volatile. But if you have more of an adult investing time window, let's say four, five, ten years, Bitcoin's volatility disappears and you see a very steep upward trend, which is why a lot of people are and have been excited about Bitcoin is because there's been a lot of wealth created with its uh, appreciation over its 13 years of existence. So it's very volatile in the short term. But when you talk about a store of value, if you're talking about a long enough period of time, it makes a lot of sense when the dollar's doing this and Bitcoin is doing this going, going up. Um, so by the way, there's never been a four-year period of time. If you took a four-year, uh, I used to be an engineer, so I think in terms of engineering, if you took calipers and spread them out to four years and place that anywhere you want to go on the Bitcoin price history chart, there's never been a four-year period in which Bitcoin didn't appreciate in value. Now, its volatility in the short run is due partly to the fact that it's, it's still young. Uh, even though it's 13 years old, you know, it's a, it's an adolescent teen, um, even though it, it's old enough that we can now really say, boy, the risk of investing in this is really diminished. The early adopters had no idea what they had their hands on. We've got the idea now that it's going to survive. If it's made it 13 years, it'll probably make it more. Uh, the Lindy effect, which says the longer something has been around, the longer you can expect it to be around. 
but it's still young enough that it's small. It's only about a trillion dollar market cap. And most Bitcoiners are holding it for the long term, which means the liquidity of the trades. There's not a lot of liquidity. And so it's thinly traded compared to the overall amount. And that means you have big price fluctuations. And and in terms of how big it is, I mean, even though Bitcoin was created what, in two, after 2008, 2009, it really didn't kind of hit right until uh, uh, much more recently. And so in the sense, it's an even younger market than if you just dated it from its creation date. And so then it sounds to me like you're thinking that maybe as some of this early days of speculative sort of thing washes out, that you would expect Bitcoin both to be uh, a more less volatile and also in the longer run, a better store of value than the dollar. Potentially. That's right. And we actually have academic pre uh, precedents for this. Um, Friedrich Hayek was one of the Austrian economists. And back years and years ago, way before uh, in the early 80s, this is before even the Internet, much less cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. He predicted that if there could be a truly scarce, dependable store of value, that at first it would be collected and then hoarded. Uh, and it would be very volatile as it gained maturity and gained size. But he said at some point it would get big enough where people would no longer hoard it because its value wouldn't increase anymore. It would just be whatever its value was and its fluctuations in value would be smaller and smaller and smaller as it got bigger and bigger. So, yes, it becomes less volatile. And he said then at that point, then when everybody is comfortable with its value and that it's not going to continue to change, then it will more freely be used for the second part of what money is, because money is, number one, a store of value, which is all we've been talking about so far. Number two, it's a medium of exchange, which means I hand it to you in exchange for some goods or services. There's not a lot of that being done with Bitcoin right now because it's going up in value so steeply nobody wants to spend it, rightfully so. But someday, if Hayek's prediction is true, that it ends up being worth so much and then it stabilizes, then people will more freely trade it and use it in exchange for goods and services. And I do believe as it gets bigger, its volatility will go down as Hayek predicted, and it'll be more and more used for a medium of exchange. And then, by the way, number three is a unit of account. Things actually get priced in it. So you'd say, oh, I'm going to buy a Tesla for, you know, two Bitcoin or whatever. We're definitely not there yet. It almost reminds me some of the arguments and points you're making remind me of folks that we heard pre in the I guess the pre Bitcoin area from folks who sort of derisively used to be called gold bugs, right? Folks who had issues with fiat currency and wanted to return to the gold standard because again it's a it's a fixed amount of things. Although in a lot of ways it sounds like Bitcoin might actually be a preferable alternative because of course gold is an actual resource that has you know, that is unevenly distributed and so forth and so. It's it sounds like this almost solves some of the, I guess, issues that some people could potentially point out using any kind of a precious metal as the kind of basis of, uh, of exchange. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, the, some people have been calling it gold 2.0, <laughs> yeah. as in all the good things gold brings you, but with a lot of improvements. Gold does have some challenges. It's very hard to transact in gold. Gold can be confiscated. There's an interesting thought experiment you can do. If you think back, uh, let's go back 100 years. Let's go back to 1922. So we're in the roaring 20s. We've just finished World War I. There's almost no place you could put big bars of gold. There's almost no city in the world that you could place big bars of gold that would have been safe from then until today. 
There would have been wars, confiscations, invasions. The U.S. government confiscated the gold in the 1930s, so you couldn't put it anywhere in the U.S. Much of the rest of the world was war-torn during either World War II or the wars that followed in the 50s and 60s in East Asia and, and Africa. And so gold is a good long-term store of value, but it's difficult to store it safely. It can be confiscated at the risk of your life. Bitcoin, on the other hand, is very hard to confiscate. It's very hard to even know that you have it. And you think of these refugees leaving Ukraine right now. And uh, if some of them tried to use gold to preserve some of their wealth as they came across the border into some of these other countries, uh, it's very difficult to carry enough to have it be worth uh, you know, your while for doing so. And it puts you at risk of theft and, and other dangers when people find out you have it confiscated from you. Bitcoin, though, you can carry the keys to access it in your head and you could walk naked across a border somewhere else and find an internet cafe, maybe throw in a robe or something for decency's sake, and then log on to the internet, use your codes to access and you've got access to all your wealth. So it's gold. And everything that the gold bugs, which I I used to be one, I still partly am one, uh, everything that gold promises as a safe store of value with some massive improvements built on top, that that's Bitcoin. Okay. So it sounds like gold bug actually may be a badge of honor, uh, to, at least to, to some folks, and not necessarily a negative term. So I, I will file that away. You know, but one other thing I can hear people objecting to this thing, but that, that, that all may be true, even if they grant all your points, say, but what, what the problem that you sometimes have then is the lack of flexibility. There are situations in which, say, there's an economic slowdown and you want to rev up the economy. And so the Fed can literally, right, create money out of nothing to increase economic activity and so forth. And, and a lot of people say, well, that's that's a really important thing to have. And with Bitcoin, you wouldn't have that. Now, I'm pretty sure you don't see things the same way. So well, what, what are your thoughts on someone who would raise that sort of objection? Yeah, I, I would say they need to study economics really deeply because uh, what we have now is credit creation. We really don't have money. We have debt. And all the dollars in circulation came out of debt creation, either through the, the activities of the central bank or through fractional reserve banking from commercial banks. And yes, we have this expanding monetary base, but that doesn't cause growth. Growth is caused by innovation and investment and return and profits. And banks used to provide that service. Banks used to be an intermediary between those who wanted to lend and those who needed to borrow. And the price of money could be determined in the free market based on what the lender was willing to receive for lending her money and based on what the, the borrower was willing to pay to borrow that money. And from that, you can have investment, you can have returns, you can have production, you can have profits. It worked fine through the 1700s and 1800s. As a matter of fact, we had almost no inflation during those 200 years when we were effectively on a gold standard. Now, we... we have it backwards. We have it flipped around where instead of banks serving the economy, we think that the government is in charge of goosing the economy. We have this, this idea that central planners can run the world's financial system and do it properly as though it's a machine. And these super smart elites, just a small little group of them, these super smart elites are so smart and there are dear leaders and they can walk up to this machine and they can turn these little knobs and make the economy run just wonderfully. That's the fallacy of central planning. Free market pricing ought to be applied to money 
also. Free markets work, and if we could apply free market pricing to money, the lender and the borrower would figure out the right amount to pay and to generate, and that's what that that's what was done for hundreds of years. Uh, and so this idea that we have to create debt and we have to expand the money supply in order to grow the economy is a false assumption. And all the analysis we do of the Federal Reserve and all that we do to pick apart their press conferences and, and every little, we hang on every little word because they're running a machine that does affect the world's financial system. Seven billion people on the earth are directly affected by what the little tiny 12-person Federal Open Market Committee does at the Federal Reserve. It's preposterous. It's central planning. It's communistic control of the price of money. And there's a much better way to do it. Bitcoin could be a standard that could be relied upon. The reason you have all this tampering and central planning of the money supply is because you don't have sound money. You don't have money that can be counted on to keep its value. And you can have a deflationary money supply. That will work in a productive industrial economy, but but we've got to get back to doing that. And I'd just say for, for listeners who are uh, who, who are hearing this and thinking, wow, this sounds really interesting for for more clearly, Chris has read his has read his Hayek and, and Austrian school economists. And I would say that's definitely a lot of this. I'm hearing super strong echoes right of that kind of framework sort of brought into reality uh, for sure. You know, I, kind of moving on to something you mentioned earlier, a regulation. Uh, you, you did say that you didn't you, you thought that there should be certain types of regulation. I wanted to kind of look into that a little more. What sort of regulations more specifically do you think might be the most beneficial to the industry in general? And also, because oftentimes regulations have unintended effects, right? What do you think might be the most harmful sort of things that government could do uh, in terms of regulating this this, uh, industry? Yeah, I want to be careful because I'm never one for for waving the flag for more regulations. I'm, as I already stated, I believe in free markets, and I think in you know in many, many, many cases we're better left alone. And um, and you know there are some exciting things being pursued in that group of alternative coins, and you know there's a lot of innovation going there. And I, I don't want to see innovation stifled. However, we already have securities regulations on the books. The law already exists that you can't just sell somebody something without disclosing some very important elements of what it is that you're selling. That's the regulation law that applies to securities currently. and But it hasn't been applied yet or enforced with all of these alternative coins. And so there's been a lot of ripoffs. There's been a lot of money lost. There's been a lot of quick get-rich-quick schemes and fly-by-night operations that have come and gone and taken people's money I'm personally in favor of just applying the the regulations that already exist for securities to cryptocurrencies so that uh, so that we rein in some of this exuberance that's unwarranted. The kind of regulations that could be really damaging to answer the second part of your question is if our government did w- what for instance China did recently where China quote banned bitcoin now, it's very hard to ban Bitcoin. You really can't. I mean, you can make make it illegal to do anything with it, but it's very easy for people individually to evade and still operate with Bitcoin because it's on the Internet. It's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's easily accessible. It's hard for government to even know you're doing anything there. Um, so the practicality of it is, is really uh, something to be debated. But what China did, China was the number one 
mining country in the world, which means in Bitcoin, we can talk more about this if you want to dive into it. I cover it in the book. Uh, Mining is the mathematical game. It's kind of a race that these computers do in order to win the right to write the next block in the Bitcoin blockchain. They take all the transactions that are going on, they assemble them into a block, and then they run this uh, one one certain algorithm over and over and over again to try to get an answer that comes out below a certain bar. And if they're the first one in the world in the whole network of all the computers doing this, they get the right to write the next block to the blockchain, and then they get paid some Bitcoin for doing it. That's the game. That's mining. Well, China had the world's largest mining capacity. They were number one in the world at mining Bitcoin. And they banned it. And they chased all those mining companies out of the country, which they basically pulled out a gun and shot themselves in the foot. They, they self-immolated. They, they got rid of an enormous technological advantage they had on the world. It was absolutely a horrible decision for them and a wonderful decision for the free world in the West because all those miners then just migrated to freer countries and now we got their capacity. Now the United States is the number one miner. Kazakhstan is number two because a lot of them just ran there. By the way, Russia's number three. Um, so so uh, one really dumb thing that the U.S. government could do would be to put regulations out there, particularly on Bitcoin, that would eliminate or erode our world leadership in that category. Bitcoin and its invention of decentralized non-governmental money is such a huge invention. It may be every bit as huge as the internet. What the internet did for commerce and communication, Bitcoin can do for money and finance. And the whole world runs on money and finance. So it's an enormous advantage that we have in the United States, the fact that that capability fled China and came to the U.S. So it would be very ill-advised or the U.S. government to somehow tamp that down and regulate it and stop that. As a matter of fact, in the uh, in the, in the uh, declaration that came out of Washington, uh, Biden's edict, as you said, has seven points to it. I thought it was very uh, clearly worded, very thoughtfully worded, as though they know this. And they said, "We don't want to damage the United States uh, leadership position in these things. We you know we just want to regulate where it makes sense to regulate." And I appreciated that that. Um, you know, they've got some people that know what they're doing. Gary Gensler, the chairman of the SEC, taught cryptocurrency and Bitcoin at MIT. Uh, and so we've got some knowledge in government about Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrencies. And uh, and I'm hopeful that their regulations won't stifle our leadership position in this amazing advancement. And I, I'm hopeful at this point that it won't. You mentioned uh, the issue of mining right that and and one thing i've heard from from many places uh the impact or potential climate impact of mining cryptocurrency and i wanted to get your your take on you know the, well first off if you could explain the issue to, to folks and also your sense of how big of a deal how big of a problem this this is and may be going into the future yeah, it's a great question. And it's a very legitimate question, because if it's great for finance and great for the world, but yet it's bad for our planet, we don't want to do that. Uh, and I cover that in the Bitcoin Bride book, too, by the way, because it's such a big question. But let me start with this. First of all, the amount of hash power, the hash rate, that huge amount of computational power that's required to do this mining, to play this mining game and to run this mining race against each other, that enormous level of computational power is essentially a wall of protection 
It means that for someone to hack Bitcoin and to get in and even reverse just the latest block, they would need the computational power uh, and energy consumption larger than than many United States, like the state of Arkansas or the state of West Virginia. They would need to somehow harness more computational power, the energy requirement, than those states consume. So it's a massive wall of protection that keeps Bitcoin from being hacked. And if you think about it, the energy consumption, I'll give you a couple of numbers. It's about $2 billion a year in electricity consumption that's required to guard $1 trillion worth of market cap. That's the cheapest deal you'll ever find for guarding that much wealth. So it's a really good deal. So that just kind of flips the, the question on its head. But let's talk to the actual consumptions next. The world generates in a year, the world generates 160000 terawatt hours of power, 160,000, kind of have that in your head. Uh, the U.S. uses a couple to 3,000 of that. 50,000 terawatt hours are wasted every year, 50,000 of the 160,000. Wow. And and 25% of, of the energy is wasted just by leaving things plugged in when we're not actually even using them. Uh, by the way, uh, video games consume way more energy, many times X than Bitcoin mining does worldwide. And no one's ever talked about that or worried about that. So this is a bit of a PR campaign against Bitcoin by some of these alternative coins that claim they have better ways to do mining and stuff. It's a little bit silly. But Bitcoin consumes 120 out of 160,000. Bitcoin consumes 120 a year. That's less than 0.76% of the world's energy supply. So let's just put it in perspective. But lots of that energy, lots of that 120, about 76% of it is generated using alternative sources of energy. They're, they're, they're using solar and wind, but they're mostly using hydropower at places where it's otherwise not captured, where power companies have to let the turbines spin freely at low, low times of load because you can't store it very effectively. And so they just let the turbines spin when they could be generating power and they're not. And lots of Bitcoin miners move their rigs to these remote hydroelectric locations because rapids and waterfalls don't always locate themselves near, near cities. Um, and, and so they'll take the Bitcoin mining rigs out to these places and they'll start capturing some of that not, not used hours and they'll turn the turbines on and use that energy. So it's totally not wasteful, and it's totally not pollutant. Another thing Bitcoin miners are doing, and Exxon released this just the other day in the Wall Street Journal about a week ago, is Bitcoin miners are pulling rigs up to uh, oil wells where they have to, if, if the well is located far away from any natural gas pipelines, they have to just flare the gas away. You know, there's two things, three things you can do with the, with the gas when it comes out of the ground as you're, as you're drilling for oil one you can just you know let it let it evaporate into the atmosphere that's horrible that's straight methane into the into the atmosphere it's horrible for the environment number two you can burn it and just flare it they call it you just burn it off that's why if you drive near a lot of these oil wells out in remote places you'll see a pipe sticking up in the air and just a flame coming out of it that's what they're doing they're just burning off the gas that's a little better for the environment but it's still totally wasteful and it's still polluting the third thing you can do is put it in a pipeline and sell it but there aren't pipelines everywhere, and no one wants a pipeline to come through their backyard. And so you end up with this conundrum. Well, Exxon mentioned the other day, it leaked out 
that Bitcoin mining companies are, are partnering with Exxon to come to those, those drilling areas and they're taking that natural gas that otherwise would be evaporated or burned into the atmosphere and they're using it to turn turbines and consuming it that way to generate electricity to run Bitcoin mining machines. So I think what you're going to see is that in a very short amount of time, all this energy that's required to do Bitcoin mining, 76% of it's clean already, I think we'll very quickly get to where 100% of it's clean. And it actually helps solve waste issues that we've got from the energy energy industry anyway. Huh. Wow. All right. Well, uh, let, let's talk about Russia. You mentioned that Russia is the third leading miner of uh, uh, there. And, and so there are people, of course, as you know, who say, well, Russia is, is able to or may be able to use Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies to evade all of these massive sanctions on their on their economy. Is this a legitimate concern in your view? Yes and no. Uh, as a matter of fact, the finance minister of Russia just the other day said, we're going to start letting people pay us for our oil and natural gas in rubles uh, or, or some other currencies that, you know, that are easy for them to get around the sanctions. And then he actually said, or they can pay us in bitcoins, which that, that's staggering. But he said yeah. that um, because it wasn't that long ago, Putin himself had said some things that were derogatory about Bitcoin. Uh, but so, yes, technically speaking, strictly speaking. Yes, uh, Bitcoin could be used to get around some of the sanctions. Now, if you read through a list of the sanctions that the West has unilaterally uh, leveled against Russia, it's by far the most draconian uh, group of sanctions that have ever been issued against a country. More than against North Korea, more than against Iran, especially if you consider the short amount of time and the, the sheer number of countries involved in doing this. So it's massive regulations. Lots and lots of those are, by definition, bank transactional, which means even if you could do Bitcoin, and some, it's not going to go around some of these things that have to clear through collaborative banks and other things because you have to take one currency into another currency, back into another currency. And those can only be done through the modern banking system, the finance system that exists. However, it's conceivable that, that say, Russia and a customer who wants to buy oil and doesn't want to fall out of the favor of the United States, it's conceivable that they could use Bitcoin to pay for some transfer of uh, oil or natural gas in a way uh, that, that dodges the sanctions. The only thing is, practically speaking, it's too soon for that to happen. The, the numbers that we're talking about, the hundreds of billions of dollars, Bitcoin and certainly none of the other cryptocurrencies, have the liquidity to support something like that. It's just not big enough. As I said, most people who own Bitcoin are holding it for the long term. The amount traded per day is is not in the hundreds of billions that you you know that some of these um, energy transactions would have to be at a state level, state to state. And so, you know, it's it's too early in the life of Bitcoin for this really to be a viable option. It wouldn't move the needle at all on providing relief to Russia. But technically speaking, yes. And as a matter of fact, the, the second layer to this answer is that um, Putin had built himself up a pretty sizable war chest going into this war. He didn't just wake up on the morning of February 24th and just decide to invade a neighbor. It's conceivable that he had been planning this for years, certainly back to the two, 2014 annexation of the Crimea, uh, but probably before that. Now, going into this war, Russia had a debt-to-GDP ratio of only 
So they were very low debt. In contrast, the United States has <laughs> yeah. approximately 119% debt to GDP ratio. We're massively in debt compared to what Russia was to start this war. Secondly, Russia was a net exporter nation. They, they exported by far more than they imported. The United States were the opposite. We're much weaker in that regard. Thirdly, Putin had built up a $630 billion war chest, what he was calling Fortress Russia, in, in reserves and gold. And the problem is what he didn't count on was these sanctions being as fierce as they are. And immediately those locked up about two-thirds of those reserves. So he can spend his gold, but gold's very hard to transact in. He can spend his Chinese yuan because uh, China's still friendly and on open trade terms with Russia. But his euros, his dollars, most of those are inaccessible to him and to Russia. But if he had had the forethought to start adding Bitcoin to his national reserves, that would be a different story. And I think what you're going to see as a result of this war and these sanctions is over the next 10 years or so, countries around the globe, particularly those who aren't in the, the safe little huddle of the, the countries in the West that agree on everything, I think you're going to see smart countries start adding Bitcoin to their national reserves in a way to insulate themselves from the dominant um, financial system that rules the whole world. And that's, and that's right. The, the concern, if, say, even now, Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies aren't big enough to allow that on a massive scale, I know there are plenty of people who are saying, well, it's not just necessarily bad state actors, but terrorist groups, uh, organized crime, that sort of thing. And they say, well, I can see the advantages of cutting government out of this loop to a certain extent. But there are instances in which we don't necessarily want untraceable money and that there are, we want organizations, bad actors to be accountable. You take that away and it basically it makes it a lot easier to do bad things that can't be seen. And what's your what's your response to that? Yeah, that's true. Uh, it's definitely true. But Bitcoin is not anonymous. One of the things that uh, people in the beginning had wrong is they thought it was anonymous. And there was a uh, there was a famous um, website called Silk Road, and it it sold um, all kinds of drugs. It sold prostitution services. It sold all kinds of illegal arms, um, and and it transacted in Bitcoin because the 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 perpetrators and the customers all had the assumption that it was anonymous. Well, it isn't anonymous. <laughs> Whoops. It, it's, it's, it's pseudonymous. But if you, can, if you can get any forensics on the on-ramps to the Bitcoin network, you can follow those transactions because it's a public ledger. You can log in and see every transaction that's ever been done on Bitcoin all the way back. You can see the wallets. You can see how many Bitcoins are held in each wallet. It's not anonymous. And so uh, some people have paid uh, with their life by being life imprisoned uh, because of getting caught doing that. So it's not anonymous, never has been anonymous, and it's not ideal for nefarious actors and bad actors. Uh, if you want to talk about what they really use and transact in, it's cash. Most, Almost all crime in black market is still conducted in cash. Because that's obviously much more, uh, much more difficult to trace it oh, in a lot of ways. I see what you're saying. And I think, you know, that gets to the point of misconceptions. I think with any new technology or even, I would say, 
Bitcoin cryptocurrency is more than a new technology. It involves a new way of thinking in a lot of ways. And so, of course, there are going to be misconceptions. You you mentioned the anonymity thing, right, or the idea that all cryptocurrencies are the same. We talked about that earlier on uh, in our discussion. What other uh, misconceptions do you see from time, you know, from time to time in your in your extensive research on this that people have about Bitcoin or cryptocurrency in general? Yeah, a couple of them. And again, it's why I wrote the book, The Bitcoin Bride, because uh, I want to educate people. I want them to understand this amazing new invention and what's in it for them, how it will serve them. I think uh, in some ways, one of the misconceptions is that it's just too complicated. Uh, we could never figure it out. And that's for technologically oriented people. Wrong. It's, it's privatized money. It's freedom money, money to the people, and the people ought to know about it, uh, and they ought to know why it benefits them. Another uh, another misconception is that it's just an investment vehicle. It's just a get-rich-quick thing, and uh, I'm not an investor. I don't know enough about that, or I don't want to lose a bunch of money, uh, and so it's too speculative. It's too fly-by-night. It's too volatile. I don't want to do anything there, and you and I have already kind of talked through that, that if you have a long enough time window, I believe, it might be the best investment anybody can make. I mean, obviously, they got to do their own research and get educated, which is why the, why the book. Um, but then probably the biggest one you just said it is people lump all these together. Uh, they, they lump all these other cryptocurrencies together with Bitcoin. They just call them all cryptocurrencies, and they try to paint them, paint them with the same brush. They're radically different. Bitcoin stands alone over here. All the others are clumped over here. But then even if you dig in over here, there's some that are super interesting trying to solve real problems and using real technology to do it. And you got to separate those from the fly-by-night scams and the shysters and hucksters. So uh, there really is education that has to take place here, but it's not beyond people to learn. It can be fun to learn. It can be interesting and it can be very profitable for people. And, you know, the problem of inflation hurts. And as I said this earlier, lower, uh, lower income and poor people the most. And, and, and people around the world in war-ravaged countries are with draconian governments. And Bitcoin, the message of Bitcoin really needs to get to those people because it can help them the most. Now, you mentioned already one thing you think is going to happen with the future of cryptocurrency is that a lot of these kind of shady or minor players are going to drop out of the market and it's going to be more consolidated and become more, I guess, overall as a market, right, respectable and trusted. But what we're looking into the sort of near term future, what what other things do you see maybe happening? What role do you see government, for better or worse, playing in this? Yeah, well, yeah, we did touch on this a little bit. I do believe you'll see smaller governments of the world and then lar- and then working larger and larger. They'll start realizing that this is a reserve asset and they'll start adding it to their treasuries. Um, and I think that's a very prudent thing to do. I think the United States ought to get ahead of that and, and get into a dominant leadership position there as well, not just technologically with all of our private enterprises and everybody's companies doing Bitcoin all around the United States, but the government ought to start adding Bitcoin to its reserves. I, unfortunately, I think it'll be slow to do that. Um, you know, uh, people either look at it as a plaything or a toy, or um, some governments look at it rightfully. If they're if they're a totalitarian regime, they look at it as a threat uh, to to their control. And th- you know, that's why China tried to ban Bitcoin and kick it from its its land altogether. Um, but I do think that you'll see. Um, the next wave will have institutions start to come in bigger and bigger. Institutional investors will come in more and more and more and be adding 
some portion of Bitcoin to their portfolio, kind of as some of them do gold, you know, they'll have 1% or 5 or 10% gold. You'll see a lot more than of that. After that, you'll, I think you'll see some of the nations adding it to their treasuries. And I do believe it will become an alternative financial standard. Now, there are people who uh, call themselves Bitcoin maximalists or, or hyper-Bitcoinization uh, adherents, and they believe that Bitcoin will become the reserve money around the world. If the dollar loses its position as the reserve currency of the world, they believe that it's inevitable that Bitcoin takes that helm and becomes that. I I would cheer that on, I think, but I'm not so certain that that would ever happen as an eventuality. I think there's going to be a massive war where the central banks of the world fight viciously to keep their control over the money of the world. Yeah, and that, that kind of brings me into why it's the, the question that we'll, uh, cl- we'll close on. And that's uh, okay, as part of that executive order, uh, President Biden called on at least exploring the idea of a U.S. central bank digital currency. And you talk about, you know, governments wanting to control currency. And so I'm wondering, my first thought when I read this, like, wait a second, if we if we have Bitcoin, uh, and if we have the U.S. dollar, why would we need something that sort of combines them in some sort of way? Well, I don't know, way that I certainly don't understand. So what do you think about that idea of a basically, I guess it would be some sort of a government run, government backed cryptocurrency as opposed to uh, something like Bitcoin? Well, I appreciated the way the executive order was worded. This was point seven in the list. And they said, investigate, not implement. So, all right, we're just looking at it which I appreciated that. But then the part I really liked was they said, we have to make sure we can do this while upholding the principles of democracy. And that's key. That's very important because, uh, and, and first of all, none of the technology that was invented to make Bitcoin possible is needed at all for a central bank digital currency. It, it really is not even the same animal. All the technology that came together to make Bitcoin possible was all for this idea of decentralization and letting it run on its own. To to use a negative uh, illustration, Bitcoin's kind of like a virus that escaped the lab and it's just out in the world and you can't put it back in and because nobody's in charge of it. You can't arrest anybody. You can't sanction anybody. It's just out there. Uh, So all the technology of Bitcoin was invented to make that a reality. Well, All of that is the opposite when you talk about a government issuing its own digital currency. As a matter of fact, we already have a digital currency. Most of the U.S. dollars in the world only exist as digital dollars in bank account ledgers somewhere. So, you know, to call the cryptocurrency is a fallacy. But the term they've applied to it, you said it, is a a central bank uh, digital currency, CBDC. And what they really mean is programmable money. They mean getting rid of cash, as you and I talked about why one of the reasons they might want to do that. And all money would be digital. And they will they would at first sell it as a convenience because, man, it's just on your phone. Uh, you know, you can track everything. But the dangers are this. There's two really big dangers, which is why I appreciated the, the uh, executive order mentioning that we have to be careful and preserve the principles of democracy. Because the first thing that would happen if the U.S. dollar was strictly digital is surveillance. It would give the U.S. government. 100% optics into every dollar you ever spend your entire life, wherever you go. Uh, and, you know, and you think, well, I'm an honest person. I don't, <laughs> still, it's, it's invasive and it's scary because, you know, because the second part of it is programmable money, which means 
they could decide, and this already exists in China, they have something called a social score. They could decide, Michael, that they don't really like your podcast and they don't like some of the guests that you've had on the show. That Chris Brady guy, you know, <laughs> yeah. he's a nose picker. We don't like that guy. And so we're going to diminish your social score by 10% and take away that amount of money. Or they might, and I'll just say a ridiculous example. They might say that, you know, the 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 FDA has, has determined that uh, Americans should only be consuming 2,200 calories a day. And so when you try to spend money on more than 22 calories a day, we're just going to turn it off. We're going to make your money not spend. This is a ridiculous example. But you, I yeah. use an absurd one to show what the power the government would have if they could suddenly see and surveil every dollar you ever spent, every penny, and they could control whether or not you were able to spend it. Talk about wealth redistribution. Talk about wealth confiscation. Um, it's the end of financial freedom as we know it, if this were to come to pass. Now, in the beginning, it would be nice. It would be contained. It would be way over here. Uh, but you know how government policies go. They have bracket creep, and pretty soon it would take in the whole enchilada. Yeah, well, well, that that certainly is a future that uh, scares the hell out of me, a very negative, dystopian sort of future. And I always like to try to, if possible, end on an optimistic note. So I guess I'll ask you this. Uh, are you how, how do you feel about, you know, the maybe longer term future of this? Do you see it as more of a, uh, an engine of of freedom and against oppression? Or do you think it's more likely that we're going to that government's going to find a way to control this in a way to kind of clamp down even more on human freedom. I'm an optimist on that regard. I, again, I'm very encouraged by the president's executive order some of the language in there. Uh, as I said, there's some, there's some Bitcoin and crypto experts in government. There are a lot of elected representatives who are very enthusiastic about this space. And I'm optimistic that the United States not only has the lead in this, but will continue to lead in this, and that it's a great thing for people all around the world in every country. It serves the poor, it serves the refugees, and it really is the invention of money for the people, and it can't be stopped. You know, an idea whose time has come cannot be stopped, and the idea of resetting the clock back prior to 2500 BC and giving people freedom over their money has happened right during you in my lifetime. It's an awesome time to be alive, and I can't wait to see where this goes. Well, that is, a be- that is an excellent optimistic note on which to close. Chris Brady, it's been great talking to you. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed this Politics Guys interview, and if you did, we'd really appreciate it if you could mention us on social media or however else you share things you like. It would also be great if you could rate and review us on your podcast app. If you've got a question, comment, correction, gripe, manifesto, whatever, you want to share it with us, you can reach us a bunch of ways. Mail at politicsguys.com, as well as there's our supporters-exclusive Discord channel, and we're also on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to become a supporter of the show, you can find out more about that at patreon.com slash politicsguys or politicsguys.com slash support. And links to all that are always in our show notes. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andre Masker, Daniel Toe, and Ryan Beasley. We'll be back with a new episode this coming weekend. We hope you'll join us.